turning the keys of the kingdom. So if you want to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 16, our pastor uh, constantly reminds us that we're on mission. And I I love that about Pastor Ronnie. Um, Susie and I have been officially involved in international missions for 15 years now. But we've been personally involved in missions for our entire life. And uh, I believe that that's true of everyone who's a child of God. Because every child of God has been given the Great Commission. Every one of us has been commanded to remember that as we are going through life, our responsibility is to be making disciples of all peoples that we cross paths with, whatever nation they're in, and baptizing them. And I take that as immersing them into our triune God, immersing them into God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything in God's Word as a manifestation of their love and their allegiance to Him. That's missions, folks. That's being on missions. That's, that's evangelism. And so this morning, I want to challenge you not to allow the occupation that you have in this world to obscure your focus on an even more essential, more enduring work that God has given you. And that is being involved in building his church, which the gates of Hades will never overcome. Uh, To set that challenge before you, let's follow along together as we go through verse 13 through 19. Let me just read those. Verse 13 of Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, well, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we are amazed that you who is the eternal Sovereign, the one who has existed forever, would speak to us. And yet you do, Father. You speak to us very clearly through your word. And we pray now, Father, that you would cause the ears of our hearts to hear and to be able to understand the truth that you've communicated to us here. So, Father, we throw ourselves upon your mercy, knowing that in ourself, This is impossible. But with you, we can understand, be transformed, and live for the glory of your name, which we desire to do through our enabling Savior, Christ. Amen. Now, when you look at that passage and you begin to think uh, about the setting in which this personal encounter with Jesus 
and his disciples takes place, it's very critical to understand that setting. It's similar to the setting which you and I will minister in for the rest of our life. And I say that because the original word or name of the city, Caesarea Philippi, was Paneus. According to pagan mythology, the Greek god Pan was born in a cave near that city. This city was located about 30 miles north and east of the Sea of Galilee on this absolutely beautiful plateau. Um, it, it has, uh, it, it's right uh, against Mount Hermon, and you can see the snow-peaked uh, cap of, of the mountain there, and the refreshing headwaters of the Jordan River actually flow out from that very spot. But you know, much of the beauty of that place was marred by the temple that was built in honor of the pagan god Peneus. And so even though Caesarea Philippi was located in this extremely beautiful area of Israel, near that northern border of the Promised Land, it had become the crossroads of heathenism and Judaism. This area had always been especially susceptible to the pagan influences of the world. And so now it's into this area, this area which is the gateway into the pagan world, where Jesus leads his disciples as he commissions them into the ministry of worldwide missions, into working with him in helping to build the church. Now it's important for you and I to realize that Jesus had matured the faith of these men for two and a half years. And now it's time for them to face the challenge of working along with Christ to build his church throughout that pagan, unbelieving world. And it's a good thing that their faith was mature, for they would face a great challenge when it came to helping build the church upon Christ. For even though the people of this world would say many flattering things to them about Christ, their understanding of the Lord Jesus and who he really was, was far, far away from the reality of Christ. Now, the Lord has matured our faith too. We've been blessed for the last three years to be together as a church family. And through the ministry of our church family, all of us have been growing and maturing in our faith. And all through our years of of faithful service to the Lord in this world, which opposes him, God keeps maturing us. And just as Jesus did with each one of his disciples, after he brought their faith to life and a level of maturity to know him, I believe that Christ is walking each one of us to a very similar setting to where he took the disciples. You see, the Lord Jesus is sending you and I out of that gateway which leads into a pagan world so we can imitate the disciples and work with Christ in building his church. Now, as we do this work, it's going to be interesting. The, the answers that we will hear to the question, who is the Son of God, 
will be very similar to the answers these men heard. If you notice in verse 14, when they asked that question, people were saying, well, well uh, he's John the Baptist, or he's uh, Jeremiah, or he's Elijah. They must have believed in reincarnation, right? Uh, or he's one of the prophets. Well, when you talk to people, you're going to find that, that they're going to give you uh, very similar answers. They're going to say, well, he's one of the, the greatest spiritual leaders that this world has ever known. Or he's a man who was extremely uh, close with God and had an intimate relationship with him. Or he was a young adult with uh, this deep devotion to God. But you know, all of those titles, all of those concepts of Christ are flattering. But listen, they fall short of identifying Jesus as he really is. For he is the Messiah. He is our saving Lord. He is God himself robed in human flesh. And the reason for the answers that you receive from your friends, your co-workers, your colleagues at school, the reasons you receive those flattering answers, and yet those answers fall far, far short of completely recognizing and accepting Jesus for who he is, is because all of those unbelieving people in the world that you and I associate with are living in the cemetery of Satan. Yet Jesus told his disciples in the latter part of verse 18, and that includes everyone in the 21st century, um, he, says the, he says this to all of us, the gates of Hades will not overcome the church which he is building. Now we need to understand that Hades is the place of the dead. Be sure to notice that this abode of the dead is encircled by gates. And so picture in your mind a place encircled by gates. Jesus is assuring his disciple that these gates around the spiritually dead people of this world, the gates around those who are existing in the cemetery of Satan, will not prevent his church from being built. You and I, as we enter into and continue on in our missions work in this world, must always keep in the very forefront of our mind that gates are not designed to capture people. Gates are designed to keep people captive. The gates of a cemetery... Do not march down a city street, invade homes, and carry people away captive to the graveyard. No, no. A gate is not an offensive weapon of warfare. It is a defensive weapon. And it's designed to keep those who are already conquered in their captive condition to keep them Restrained and conquered, right? Now, I have gates up here that are made of iron and steel. But when you think of these gates and you relate to the people of the world, you need to realize that those things are the things that, those gates are the things that people build around their lives to protect them from the gospel message, right? They're defensive mechanisms that they've built to encompass their life. They're their beliefs, their false beliefs, uh, their, their 
false world and life view, their belief or their confidence in the, the science of this world or the medical professions, uh, the economic uh, uh, power of our nation, uh, the, the uh, military might of a nation, or the goodness of people. These are the type of gates that are surrounding people's lives and keeping them captive. Now, brothers and sisters, like Peter and every authentic disciple of the Lord, we've been given the keys which unlock the gates of Hades. We have been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, it says in verse 19. Those keys are an authentic, life-altering understanding of the real Christ and who he is. Those keys are that saving knowledge which enables you to really know and really believe, like Peter and all those disciples, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. And to understand and acknowledge Jesus as the Christ means that you have come to understand he is God's anointed one. It's to recognize that he is more than that extremely good person. And to realize that he is the saving Lord of glory himself. He is that priest who atoned for our sin which none other can do. He is that prophet which speaks to us through God's word, which no other can do. And he is that king which sovereignly rules over our life and directs us in our daily living. Now, after two and a half years of struggling over the real identity of Jesus' divinity and his messiahship, That truth is now firmly established in the minds and in the hearts of those disciples. And Peter, as their spokesman, clearly now confesses what they had all come to have indelibly etched into their hearts. And I want you to be sure to notice that that saving knowledge, that faith, which transformed their lives. Those keys which unlocked the gates of Hades, unlocked the cemetery of Satan and spiritual death for them. The keys which opened the gateway into the kingdom of heaven were given to them by the grace of God. They were not gained by their own human efforts or their capabilities as a man. No, no. We know that for sure. For after Peter's saving confession of faith, look at what Christ says to him in verse 17. You see it there? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Why? For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. You see, it wasn't all their ingenuity to figure out what Jesus was saying after two and a half years. That's not why they came to know him and who he really was, the redeeming Lord. The reality is, is that the gracious hands of God had reached out of eternity and into the eternal life of those men and pulled back this veil of sin which blinded their eyes 
He pulled back the veil from their heart. And he unveiled and he exposed the identity of Christ to them. This was a work of God's grace, not a work of human effort. But Peter himself, you see, is just a tiny stone. But that tremendous mountainous rock upon which the church of Christ would be built was that divinely given grace of God which comes to us through Christ, which blesses men and women with this ability to see him and confess life-altering, life-transforming faith in Jesus, that he is the son of the living God and my Savior. Now, if you are an authentic believer of Christ, if you really know that he is your saving Lord, the keys which unlock the gates of Hades, those keys which allow people out of spiritual death and into the kingdom of heaven, have by God's grace actually been given to you. Now, it's interesting to realize that in ancient history, in the lands when there used to be kings and there were castles and there were kingdoms, one of the king's servants was known as the major domo. And the major domo was the chief servant of the king, and he carried the keys of the entire castle. And so every room and all the resources of the king and his castle were open. They were available at all times to the major domo. You know, if he's hanging late at night and, and he's wanting a, a midnight snack, he's got the keys to the kitchen. So in he goes, you know. And, and if, if the, the knights are, are at war with some other kingdom and they need more armory, he's got the keys to the armory. But he also had one other key which was extremely important. The major domo carried the master key to the king's prison. He could set the prisoners free. Brothers and sisters, you as the Lord's servants have been given the master key from God which sets free his children from the prison of sin and from the cemetery of Satan. Now, as we think about that, I want to share with you a few correct ways to use those keys. Very simply, I would say, you put the key in the lock and you turn it, right? But you look back at me and you say, yeah, Dave, but how? How do we do that? Well, I think that for this morning, we'll say that there's four critical ways to turn the keys of the kingdom. And the first way is through unfaltering faith. Even though all we accomplish as we are on mission in this world will ultimately be because of God's enabling grace. On this side of heaven, your ministry will be measured by the degree of faith which you have in God and in his grace. You see, what you are brave enough to attempt to do for God will to a large degree depend upon the faith that you have in God and his grace. In Matthew 9, Jesus graciously heals two blind men and he says to them, it's according to your faith that it will be done to you. 
So I, I want to challenge you to fan the flames of your faith as you live and work on mission in this world. Trust in God. Don't fear. Don't fall back when you have those opportunities to speak out as you're on mission. This is a God-given opportunity. And so seize that opportunity to share because God, God's right there with you. So one of the ways to turn the keys of the kingdom will be through unfailing faith. Another way will be through courageous witness. When Jesus departed for heaven, he said to the disciples in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you shall be witness for me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. A witness is simply, in a legal sense, someone who enters into a courtroom and they tell all they know and all they understand about someone or something. Christ is on trial all over the world in which we live. Our responsibility is to stand up and witness. Now please realize that sometimes to be a witness in other parts of the world and progressively here is become going to take tremendous courage. And that shouldn't surprise us because the original word that is translated witness in Acts 1.8 is the word martus, which is the word that we translate in English martyr. A martyr is a person who is such a courageous witness for Jesus that they are willing to die for him before they will fail to turn the keys of the kingdom by way of their witness. Let me illustrate that for you. Not too long back, I was in China, and we had been teaching for a couple weeks undercover, and my two teaching partners had left the country, and my flight was delayed. So I went back to the hotel and just sat in my room. I started to read and thought I'd spend the six, eight hours till my flight left just alone and meditating on what had just taken place. And then I heard a knock on the door. And I went to the door, and there were two young ladies standing at the door, and they said, our professor wants to know if you would like to have lunch with him. I said, sure. They said, he's in the lobby. So down to the lobby I went, and um, we started to walk down the street. And this uh, Chinese man said, "Um, I'm a professor of literature. I said, okay, that's interesting to know. You know, I thought, well, that's going to give me a direction of our conversation today. And he said, and I also want you to know something else. He said, I'm a communist. Now he had my attention, okay? Because when you say you're a communist, you're not saying, I live in a communist country, Dave. I want you to know that. No, you're saying, I'm a communist. I bleed this philosophy, this mentality. This is my life. About that time, we're stepping into the one of the largest Chinese restaurants I'd been in. And, uh, of course, they seat us right in the center of the restaurant. 
And he looks at me and he says, you know, being a professor of literature, my two students here, the young ladies, uh, are, are interested in Paradise Lost. And have you ever heard of Paradise Lost? I said, oh yeah, I've heard of Paradise Lost. <laughs> Not the one he was thinking about. You know, he's thinking about John Milton. I said, yeah, I've heard about Paradise Lost. And I've also heard about Paradise Regained. He said, well, would you tell us about it? So here we are in the middle of this restaurant in China, sitting across the table from this communist professor Everyone in the restaurant is now leaning in towards us, listening to the middle of the restaurant. All our little waitresses are standing here still pouring tea and not moving. (laughs) As I start in Genesis, flushed with sweat, thinking, oh boy, this is the day, huh, Dave? (laughs) I go to prison this day. (laughs) But I started in Genesis, talking about that kingdom that was lost went to Romans, the kingdom that was reclaimed by Christ, and ended in Revelation, the kingdom fulfilled for God's people. All the time, just wondering how soon someone would be calling the military police. At the end of the conversation, the professor looks at me, he says, that's exactly what we wanted to hear. My two students would like one of those books that you just talked out of. Could you get us one? I said, sure. And he said, the next time you come back here, Dave, could you teach at my university on that very same subject? I said, "Uh, sure. (laughs) But listen, I'm telling you, uh, one of the ways you turn the keys of the kingdom is through courageous witness. And it's Christ and Christ alone who gives you the courage to do that. You don't have it in yourself. Because I know many times I wanted to run and hide. But he says, no, I brought you here on purpose, Dave. Have unfaltering faith in me and be courageous in your witness. The third way I think you turn the key is through boldness in prayer. One thing I learned quickly after entering into international mission work was that humanly, I was now unable to accomplish anything for the Lord in my own strength or because of my own reputation after 30-some years in ministry in the United States. Because when I flew across that ocean and I ended up in Russia, everything that I had accomplished on this side of the ocean in Christian ministry was gone. I had no friends like Pastor Ronnie, uh, Brother Jeff, to, to call on to help me accomplish something. And Susie and I began to learn very, very quickly the reality of the words, without me, you can do nothing. God has wonderful ways of teaching all of his children that same truth regardless of which side of the ocean you minister on. It may be with your child who rebels and every word you say to them about Christ is rejected and he humbles you and causes you to realize without me you can do nothing. But he'll teach you that lesson. And you'll fall to your knees. But don't let this discourage you. Because from your knees, you're in the right position to reach up and to begin to turn the keys that unlock the cemetery of Satan 
and open the door to the kingdom of God. Because Hebrews 4.16 says, Come boldly at those times to the throne of grace, for there you will obtain mercy and grace to help you in that time of need when the winds of life are blowing in your face and you have no human ability to accomplish the very thing you hunger to see your son or your friend come to know Christ, to see them regenerate. You're in the right place, but the question is at that moment, are you praying? Are you praying? Listen, I hear you. Ronnie hears you. Jeff hears you. We hear you say you want your children to come to know Jesus. You want your mom who's aging and on death's door to come to know Jesus. But are you praying? You need to be. Prayer is a critical element in the work which takes place and takes you into the graveyards of the world. It's critical. Dead men will never come to life because you do a good job witnessing. Dead men are only brought to life by the divine voice of God calling them forth like Jesus did Lazarus from the grave. So the question is, are you praying? You need to be because prayer is the only way you can ever expect to see men and women set free from the cemetery of Satan. So you can turn the key that opens the door to the kingdom from your knees through prayer. And finally, for today, I'd say you turn it through unfailing love. We're told in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, that love always protects and it always trusts and it always hopes. And love always perseveres. In other words, it endures all things but continues to love. So in the face of misfortune, in the face of trials, you just bravely, calmly keep moving forth in your love for God and your love to impact others with the message of the gospel. It means that you never flee as you face hard times, for you have an unfaltering faith and love in him. Your love for Christ is what needs to lead you as you walk through trials, regardless if times are good or bad, because love always perseveres, And he is the one who enables that in you. Let me tell you another story. I've seen this so real. The little man in the picture, the old man, is named Cruceru. He was a pastor. Now he's present with the pastor in heaven. But he was a pastor under communism, a friend of mine in Romania. And he pastored for several years under that communist dictatorial rule. And one day they took him in, the, the military police, and they held a gun to his head and they said, you'll, you'll start to betray your people, you'll tell us what they're doing, and you'll quit preaching about Christ. He said, no, I won't do that. He said, uh, I'd rather you kill me. And um, so they threw him out. They didn't know what to do with him. He kept preaching because he loved Christ and loved his people. And they came one day and they took him right out of the pulpit while he was preaching. 
ran all the people out of the church and locked down the building, and they carried him to the far side of the country and placed him in the Danube River Canal. There for 16 months, with sledgehammer and pickaxe in his hand, he beat rocks to make a human-built canal for ocean-going vessels through solid rock. His wife at that time was not a follower of Christ, but she loved her husband. So she sent him a box of grapes. Knowing how much he loved Christ, she snuck a little New Testament in there. In God's providential workings, the guard looked away at the moment he was giving the box to Brother Cuchero, and uh, he got it, and inside he finds the New Testament, and he finds all these grapes. Now he's desperate. They don't feed these kind of guys. But you know what he did with the grapes? He squeezed them into juice because he'd found four other brothers in there who loved Christ. And with juice, they could celebrate the table of remembrance together on a regular basis and express their love in hiding to the God who loved them eternally. As he's in there, his brother is found dead, skull split open, beaten to death with a lead pipe, and the military police say, well, he was in an auto accident. Finally, they release Brother Cuchero from the Danube River Prison Canal. It takes him two months in his emaciated condition to walk across the country. He finally gets back to near his home, and he's walking across the field, and he greets uh, someone in the field, a shepherd, greets him, and he greets them. They don't recognize him. It's his father. And he says something else, and his daddy finally recognizes his voice, runs, sweeps him up in his arm, carries him home to his bride. She nurses him back to health and comes to know Christ in the midst of that. Three days later, he gets up. He goes out into the village. She says, where are you going, honey? He said, honey... These people need to know that God loves them and that I love them because God sent his son for them. And he goes out in the village and starts telling people, come to church Sunday, it will be open again. And so he goes to church Sunday and the military police are there waiting for him. And they say, you can't open this church. He said, oh no, no, you don't understand Because I love him and I love you, I must open this church. Your job is to close churches. My job is to open them because God loves his people. This church is open. And in God's providence, the doors came open and many people came to Christ. And I've been in on the celebration when they ordained a new pastor that I trained and was there as my brother slipped into the presence of the one who is the pastor of all pastors, the shepherd of our soul, the one who is worthy of all of our love and enables our love. So as we prepare to leave today and you continue on mission, you remember that the people that you're working with in the world are enclosed in the cemetery of Satan. But the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. So I want to encourage you as you leave to turn the keys of the kingdom 
be good grave robbers. Don't let your occupation consume you. Let the occupation you have with God and the commission he's given you cause you to be a good grave robber so we see all God's children come to know him and love him and live for him. For folks, it's the only thing that you have a guarantee for the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. Your job may fail, but the church won't fail because our God will never fail. Let's pray together.